Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. Let's face it, the future is now. We're living in a connected cyber society, and we need to stop ignoring it or pretending that it's not affecting us. Join us as we explore how humanity arrived at this current state of digital reality and what it means to live amongst so much technology and data. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Black Cloak provides concierge cybersecurity protection to corporate executives and high net worth individuals to protect against hacking, reputational loss, financial loss, and the impacts of a corporate data breach. Learn more at blackcloak.io. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. John. Did you feel the rumble? The rumble? The rumble. The engine? <laughs> it was my stomach. Oh. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it was a launch. Wow. launch. Hopefully my stomach I, I thought so too. I thought so too. I, I hear that rumble, but I didn't I didn't know it was your stomach. But what's wrong with you? <laughs> I'm really, really hungry. I'm hungry for space travel. And on, no, on a serious note, uh, yeah, I've been looking at the East Coast quite a bit, and and the, the whole launch launch area over there. And I thought, wow, I'd love. To, I've never been. I'd love to be able to go and and experience space launch at some point, uh, regardless of where it's going. Right? I don't know. It, it just seemed it's super cool to me. But it's much more than just being super cool. There's a lot of value in in what's going on with these programs, right, Marco? Absolutely. And there is a lot of value. Uh, it, the trickles down, and I think uh, the everyday person doesn't necessarily realize that. But uh, if you go in some uh, NASA location or museum or uh, space center, and you happen to, to see some, uh, some important um, tools and technology that they've been going to space, then they say, hey, by the way, we're using it right now in our everyday life, and you didn't even know about it. So the what question the is day, always... The Black & Decker drill was one of the, one of the tools, I think, created. <laughs> That's what it? I read okay. anyway. I don't know. But the, the, I, the story was so the, so the astronaut didn't spin around in space. I don't know. It was kind of strange. You know what? I, I don't trust you, so I want to make it clear right now. So we're going we're gonna to ask someone that maybe knows about space a little bit more than you. But let me make this quick introduction to the fact that this is going to be a conversation in Redefining Society. So it's, it's, it will talk about technology. It will talk about cybersecurity and security. But it's focused on the repercussion of all that we do all the way up there in space and, what it, and how it affects our everyday life in our society, either we understand it or not. So, and again, because I don't trust you, I brought a couple of people that knows about space a little bit more than you. <laughs> and, uh, and just so you can redeem yourself, I'm going to let you introduce them. How about that? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna half cheat, and I'm just gonna introduce uh, and welcome back to the show our good friend Steve from the Aerospace Village and beyond. And uh, he, he's been on the show a few times. We've uh, we've experienced the Aerospace Village um, even before it was called the Aerospace Village. And there's a lot of innovation going on there. A lot of Checks and balances. You mentioned cybersecurity, uh, which is an important thing. We've, we've caught up with the team in, in Black Hat in, in Las Vegas to talk about that. Um, we're, we're broadening the conversation today. We're looking at broader space. And Steve, it's great to have you back on the show. Uh, maybe a quick word Absolutely. from you to, to reintroduce yourself to our audience, and then I'm going to give you the honor to introduce Renee. Yeah, you bet. Thanks, fellas. I, I really appreciate it. It's fun coming back and catching up with you guys. It's been a while. 
And uh, I know it's going to still be a little bit more before we'll be in person again. But uh, again, it's good seeing you. Happy to support. And uh, it's really great seeing how you all are growing and continuing to grow. And I am enjoying the podcast. So uh, thank you for the work you're doing there. And thank you for supporting, uh, asking the village to be a part of what you do. Um, uh, by way of introduction, so I don't forget about that, I'm Steve Lazinski. I am the chairman of the board of directors for the nonprofit that's called the Aerospace Village. Um, so I help with our partnerships and our connections and uh, and the folks who run the operations so they can concentrate on uh, putting on the things that we're doing at RSA coming up, the sandbox that we have next week, as a matter of fact. Uh, and then we're getting ready for DEF CON again in Las Vegas. And we have some other events and I'm happy to talk about those in more detail later. But what I really appreciate is because of this work, this hobby that I do on the side, I get to talk to people like Renee, who I will introduce. Uh, we got connected from a friend of our mutual friend at uh, AIAA. And uh, I am happy to bring Renee Wynn, former CIO at NASA, uh, to you all and to get her perspective. We've talked a little bit on the cybersecurity side of things, but I know there's a whole lot more that she knows. And so the idea of your show and and getting to learn from her and hear her talk and her energy. I really enjoyed that. So that's why I'm very happy to introduce Renee to you both and bring her to your show today. Renee. Hey, thank you, Steve. It's great to see you again and be partnered to, with you to really bring cybersecurity into space, right? If it's happening here on terra firma, frankly, you ought to be scared because it's probably happening in space maybe a bigger bankroll. But before we even touch on cybersecurity, let me tell you a little bit about me and let's talk a little bit about why space is important, right? There were huge protests back in the 60s, I believe it was, when NASA started to get funding to put a man at this point on the moon. We are looking to put some high-heeled boots into that regolith. I'm here very soon with the Artemis program. Delighted to see that. So that science fiction becoming fact is available for all and a diverse population, both men and women, or however you identify and that. So for me, let's just start where I am. So I'm a 30-year United States federal government employee. I vowed I'd never be in the United States government. Both my parents served. And I would, as soon as I got that burning flame in my heart, um, I was in. And my first 25 years was the Environmental Protection Agency, where I did environmental programs. I also started to see how technology makes a difference in delivering the mission, dabbled in that, and then ultimately switched over to be the deputy CIO at EPA. And then uh, I wanted to get better at operations, IT in particular, In NASA was looking for a deputy CIO. So I switched over to NASA. I failed as the deputy. I was asked to be the CIO after a couple of weeks. So, you know, if, if not me, then who? And I figured I was able to find a job. So if I didn't do very well at that, I would, you know, go ahead and find that job. But I finished my career um, as the NASA chief information officer, where I learned a lot and I got a lot of very unique experiences, both through my exposure to space and space technology and science associated with space, the invention of technology and, um, you know, the beginning of cybersecurity in space. For me, it was because it was a by order of the White House. And my NASA administrator said, sure, and turns to me and says, could you just go make that happen? And he is, he is, I'm grateful for that opportunity and all the gray hairs that happened. And since I retired in 2020, in the middle of the, the beginning of the pandemic, uh, I'd hoped to go back to work in the private sector. Didn't work out, understandably. I didn't really want to take a job from somebody who needed it. So I ended up my own little company of one, having had more than 20 direct reports at last at my last position, I was really excited about not having 20 plus people reporting to me on a regular basis. So I started my own company where I do independent consulting. It's really a portfolio, do independent consulting. I help uh, product companies uh, really prepare for and be and serve 
the United States government, which is a little different beast. We don't try to be that way, but we are. And then my final piece is serving on corporate boards where I bring together my ESG qualifications, my cybersecurity qualifications through uh, on-the-job training, digital transformation, obviously global and off-the-globe IT uh, services, as well as delivering uh, infrastructure across the globe and off the globe as well, because satellites need to have an uh, infrastructure to come down to in order to deliver the data that helps make great things happen. So very excited to be here. I'm happy to share some of the tales, the fun stories, because it's really the stories, I hope, that will uh, encourage somebody or inspire somebody to take a step out in a direction, either in their career or pursue their passion, um, to find ways to, you know, just just seek happiness and satisfaction in life. I'm just listening here. I feel like I need popcorn and, and just listening to you talk. And maybe you and Steve and right? Sean and I are just going to, you know, just be here for the show. Uh, I want to I want to talk know. about off the globe infrastructure. That that I've never that's awesome. That's my pop that's my, I'm back to my popcorn now. There it is. Well September 2019. Astronauts have computers. NASA was changing over to Office 365 and the team at Johnson, part of the CIO, worked for the International Space Station, and we delivered Office 365 um, to our astronauts. Do you know what? Let, Just... let's, let's talk about that. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Let, let's change things around a little bit, and then we, we go to maybe the environment, because I'm very fascinated how you connect environment here on Earth. And, and I have been lucky to visit a center here, the, the, the Armstrong Center near LA and the old flying system, they were explaining me how when a catastrophe, like a, an atmospheric catastrophe happened, a, a tornado or something, actually NASA does a lot for what happened here on the planet. It's not just in space. So we'll, we'll get to that. But first, tell me, tell me that story on how you connect this technology where you were going with this and maybe Steve We'll jump on that and then and we go to the next part. Yeah. Um, so it, NASA honestly needed for a variety of reasons to upgrade its tools. They use email and the whole suite of Office 365 that goes with it. And so, um, you know, we started small and got very rapid and the team did an amazing job. We had some great contractor partners and it was a point when here on Terra Firma, when you switched over, it was it felt instantly, you know, to the point the phone calls were, I don't know if I've gotten there yet or not. Um, and so we're like, oh, we must be successful. But apparently we forgot to maybe put a few glitches in the process so that they would know they were on the rough path of changing over to Office 365. But it just speaks to the talent that exists at NASA and in our contractor staffs that serves them. So then it came time to do uh, International Space Station. And it wasn't sort of walk in, we've got a new project. It's a, it takes a long time to work through the project uh, because there's uh, interconnectivity from here to space that you have to deal with. There's the technical piece associated with it. There's uh, data that has to move back from station or up to station that is uh, for the health and care of our astronauts for the science experiments that are going on at International Space Station. So you think it's hard maybe if you have, you know, five kids and two adults in your house and you're trying to do schedules. Imagine what the schedule looks like for data transmission to the International Space Station, which is 24-7, 365 for more than two decades. So yeah, back up to the planning stage. And you will add a little hope because it's IT. So we always add hope in our strategy. And the team works with station to figure out the best way to configure and deliver uh, up to station. We've had some practice working together uh, when the iPads uh, get it, were getting updated on station. And they usually went without a glitch. We started to have glitches. We couldn't get the updates done. And so uh, we used our premier support with Apple called them, say, hey, we've got a technical problem. Interestingly enough, Apple was right there with us, uh, helping out. It was very great to be part of NASA, both from a professional perspective, but it also allowed us to get some help maybe a little faster than other places. And that, and so, you know, we worked, we, um, the, the teams worked together to figure out how do we make this, you know, go fast, go accurate, 
and make sure that the astronauts can continue to have their email, which in many cases is really their connection back to Earth. There's other connections as well, but it is one way that they stay tethered um, to the planet and to the people that are on this planet, including their family and friends. And so we just worked very closely with them, a lot of timing, a lot of squeezing things, and then, then that little bit of hope, and we did it. So it was very exciting. I was so excited. The team, I got a text when everything was finished. Mostly my texts were, this is down or we've got a cyber incident. This is one of those smiley face texts that a CIO can get. Was it like a text from space? It's kind of like a, a funny book, you know, like text from my dog. No, it was, it was from the team firmly planted on terra firma. Mm -hmm. And I want to... Maybe, Steve, your thoughts on this, and then back to Renee uh, with some more color, perhaps. Because, Renee, you said it went so well, they didn't know that it switched over. And I'm just, that, that prompted a thought in my head of things are different when you're, I presume, in the space station, right? Uh, you, you think differently, maybe you move differently, maybe you interact differently. Certainly, delays in communication um, change the way that you communicate with others. And if you bring it down from the space station into, uh, into a plane, I, I, similar things, right, Steve? Um, if you're flying a plane, you, you think differently than if you're two feet around the ground, uh, not worrying about if there's something around you <laughs> with, with a nice, uh, nice weapon attached to it. So the, the question I have to you, Steve, and maybe then to Renee, the, the similar question is, how do you change technology and maybe even specifically communication technology to adapt to the way that, that we as humans are in these different places. Yeah, that's interesting. My first thought when you were asking that, Sean, is that my appreciation for Renee's story and how when you were saying folks are thinking of things differently, the calm, uh, communication, the navigation, and then the life support all of, and I'd say life support's probably the first in that list, even though I said it last, um, whether it's flying or in space, uh, those are the things that you're thinking of, you're prioritizing, you know your systems very well. So, you know, as a commercial pilot, you're thinking of all those things in the airplane because you're in it as the pilot and you've got your passengers. Um, in my experience flying by myself, my airplane, I care about life support and where I'm going and being able to talk, uh, whether I'm just going from point A to point B or talking to my team because we're doing a mission. Uh, and I would imagine similar uh, from what you know Renee's describing, that they're doing the same things of these are the key things we have to worry about and everybody's involved across the teams. We need to know it's there. And I, I don't know how well, you know, to thinking about to answer your question of, how do we make sure that, do I need people to do that? Do I need my mom to think that much about the technology to communicate, to use it in the car, things of that nature? You know, the easiness and things are getting way better on the user experience. And I'm kind of glad she doesn't have to worry about that. And eventually I'm not going to be as concerned in others and it'll become less and less because it's just baked in. Uh, and I, I, if nothing else, I can at least say I'm impressed by the folks who do this work because it becomes so simple and easy. And as Renee was talking about her story, what came to my mind was, if you remember the, the last time I was on with you all, it was with Pam Melroy, and she told the story from the astronaut perspective of connecting the space station and just getting those basics. And the fact that you know now we're hearing how Renee has built on some of that initial work and and look at the success and what she's describing. Uh, as technology progresses, I should think it'd be even more like that. So, um, you know, I, I'm still in the fascinated and enjoying hearing the stories mode. I, I got to think some more on that one to give you a better answer. Renee? Well, let me build on that and then I'll get to the question. Safety is paramount at NASA. Over 40 plus lives have died in the pursuit of human space exploration. And that cannot be forgotten at our lives where Twitter, YouTube, you are watching launches on a regular basis, resupply missions, putting more satellites into space, 
uh, you, whatever the purpose is, a civilian, military, commercial, there's lots more space traffic associated with it. Safety is paramount. And let me talk about some of the science and work that NASA does, especially as we've finished Memorial Day, the unofficial kickoff of summer, but it is intended to remember those that have given their lives um, in preservation of democracy, if it's protecting United States interests, in other cases, helping our allies with their interests as well. Years ago uh, at our Armstrong facility, formerly known as Drydown, which is one of the aerospace um, focused on aviation uh, centers at NASA. And this story just still gives me absolute goosebumps, but it's about saving lives. So pilots in the super cool fighter jets, it's the best way I can call them without miscalling them by their letters and numbers, pass out because of the G-force. And in that state of unconsciousness, we have lost some pilots into mountains. And, you know, the person on the ground says, how do you fly into a mountain? Well, if you've passed out, that's how you fly into a mountain. And it's tragic for everybody involved. NASA did a research project and uh, what you have as a result of that is some artificial intelligence where if the pilot passes out, the airplane begins to fly itself even more. And airplanes fly themselves. I understand you can tell the difference between an assisted landing and a human landing now based on their roughness. I won't tell you which is which. Um but that AI kicks in, in that particular piece, artificial intelligence kicks in to keep that pilot alive until she or he regains consciousness. It has prevented deaths. And Armstrong facility had the amazing opportunity where one of the pilots that was saved came and spoke to them, uh, to the whole, you know, the center was invited, but I can't imagine the joy the feeling of having both been a public servant, doing mission, being what burns inside of you and everything that you do. It's like that flame that keeps you going when you can't. Um, they got to hear from a pilot that lived uh, in that. And so this is technology interacting with humans for the benefit of safety. And that interaction has to be safe as well. And so your cars that are now somewhat self-driving park themselves in some instances. That's a good thing. I've seen some people parking lately because they hadn't driven for a couple of years. And I'm like, please tell me that that car has park assist in it or something like that. So, you know, that's a story about how artificial intelligence and technology can make a difference in lives. And that's a, it's a real story uh, somewhere buried in YouTube. I'm sure you can find it to see the, um, to hear actually more or less that interaction. So I, I think it's over 10, 10 lives, 10 aircraft, 10 lives, something like that. It's uh, remarkable that what that system has been providing. Yay. So we are, we are, I'm sorry that we're at 10, but I'm glad we're at 10 and let's maybe hold, but you know, the human body has safety precautions built into it. And unfortunately one of those, things built into us as humans is passing out when certain things happen to us. And one of them being gravity and people are in different places on that one as well. So yeah, that's great to hear. So there's, um, there's safety and funding NASA. Actually, in this case, it was, you know, I'm sure it was a project by the military that helped fund NASA to take really a challenge, a real big problem thing to solve for the benefit um, of our of our vets and our current military service personnel and make it so it's safer for them. So satellites make our days safe. So if you're on an airplane, the global positioning system is part of that process. And so as long as those satellites are working and all the other systems are a go, it's not the only reason we can fly safety safely. 
that GPS allows us to get uh, more than one pilot or more than one person's day rate on the airplane of, you know, a couple of hundred, especially nowadays, right? GPS is used to, to guide that safety. Ship transportation, there are four, far more uncrewed ships out there. Um, and so, again, they're using GPS and, and other systems to, again, safely navigate waters and bring us our food. Uh, from overseas or in some cases our TVs or other goods are bringing into it. So satellites are part of our everyday safety and that. So we are, I'm grateful for it. Uh, I'm a big consumer of it. And there are many other places where satellites play in our safety of our daily lives. Yeah, and I, I understand that it's, it's not just that. I mean, all the things that are done in space from, checking on, on the human body, how we react when we are in space, a medical condition that, that can appear because, of course, no gravity. It's a little bit different <laughs> than here. But what I'm really interested also in, in, maybe bring it a little bit more philosophical, meaning what drives what? Meaning we go to space... Why? A lot of people, we were talking about this before we started the conversation, like, you know, many people are saying what you said at the beginning in the 60s, for example, why are we spending all this money? Why are we going to space with all the issues we have here on Earth? And I don't think they understand the, the importance of going up there to understand ourselves here. Maybe it's simplified the way I put it, but I would love your your perspective from both of you that been flying airplane and been working with team that have brought people back safely and and all of that so uh, why so i'll start and steve you can take it from there humans are explorers by nature we we like any story you think about right i was uh, just in uh, williamsburg and we did a lot, lot of history. So in 1619, next round of Europeans come across the ocean. How scary can that be? It's not scary to cross the ocean right now because thousands of people have done it already. And you're like, okay, I just need to get into my little chair, an uncomfortable chair, I will say. And you get in my chair, put on a seatbelt and get instructed on how to use a seatbelt. Not sure why we continue to have that, but we do, right? So I snap myself in and off I go, doing what I can not to get bored to tears to get across that ocean. But in 1619, they land back here. Not This is now kind of the second round of Jamestown, and I'm fast forwarding here a lot of things. They land back here on a small ship and they get here and they survive because they wanted to. They were seeking maybe a better life. Maybe they were purely just for adventure. Maybe there were scientists along there. Like I heard that the plants were different across the way and they arrive and there's lots of these oysters that are out in the Bay Area because the ground is fairly shallow in some of the riverbeds there in the Williamsburg area. So humans love to explore. And so space was just really another opportunity for the exploration and there might have been a little bit of a spark in there of competition associated with the USSR, maybe a little. But at this point, our eyes were still up thinking about how are we going to get there safely and return? Yeah, I think, you know, like you said, thinking at the higher level, flying's fun. Going into space is fun. You know, we're seeing more and more of it. So there's just that enjoyment factor on top of it. People want to do things and share it. Uh, one of my favorite things, it was a single-seat airplane that I flew, but there were some two-seat F-15s, and we would take folks up that earned a special recognition award, and we'd get to take them out to go fly. I love doing those. Sometimes they were terrible because the person didn't feel great, and you, know, you, you don't want to beat them up. Uh, this is their good deal. You want to help them enjoy it. Uh, but it was just fun sharing that experience, taking them on a tour on the ground, you know, whatever it is. But uh, in my mind, thinking through like, OK, so what does that matter? Well, I want someone to experience flying across the ocean. I want somebody to experience going up into space. So how do we do more of it? And of course, there's commercial reasons, there's military reasons, government, all of that stuff. But 
uh, fundamentally doing more of it, making sure they can do it and then do it again so it's safer. Um, and the things that come out of that. So I still think back when I was a kid going to school, time for a book report. I wrote about the moon. I wrote about the Saturn and Apollo and all the space program and the space shuttle and the story of Velcro. Like we talk about technology and the excitement of all this computer stuff like tech Velcro came from the astronaut program. And so the simple things like that, that I can still rattle off and still remember. And that inspired me. I know it happens with others. And you think about now it's like what Renee said. Oh yeah, it's another launch. Like, that's still cool. There is, it is still great to see. I got to talk to an astronaut, Mike Massimino at RSA forever ago, back in 2020. I still talk about that. I'm mentioning it now. Like I get to brag going, I got to talk to an astronaut. It was great. So just things like that. It's, you know, being able to talk to folks, hear their experiences. And, you know, I mentioned Pam before, same thing. Um, just sharing those stories and wanting to hear more wanting to see more of what's going on and watching this transformation. Uh, you know, the last exciting technology that I saw was 3D printing a rocket. So it can be reusable, it's more lightweight. And again, people trying to do more to continue progressing that and get better at it and share that experience. And you know, again, lots of other reasons on top of it. But to me, that's what's fascinating and that uh, yeah, I'd like to see more of that. And, and, you know, how can I be a part of that and contribute from my little piece of the side of things uh, to see more of that happening for the next generation of folks? Steve, you know, I'm going to pull on a thread that you just mentioned in the benefits and I'm going to go and be a little bit more modern than Velcro and, and all of that. But let's talk about the benefits. <laughs> I know. I know. That's OK. So am I. I you know, I, I I got it. I was there. Right. <laughs> So saw it and um, I was smaller then. And, and that is as part of that exploration, technology gets invented for the benefit of humanity. And, and you bet it does. Cooling suits, astronauts, um, temperature changes, extreme temperature changes, heat, cold, and that. Back in the 80s, so I didn't take us too far, but I have some that are even sooner. Back in the 80s, there's a competition for inventing a, a way to keep the astronauts at a healthy temperature, hot, cold, and all of that. That's a hard thing to do. And so technology gets invented and one gets selected. One that didn't get selected went on to be used in developing nations to increase survivability of birth, which is still a very challenging effort. Um, having done it myself, yes, it is a challenge, but mine was not life-threatening. Others, it is life-threatening. And so these, um, this temperature, which in this instance, they went to cooling, cooling the mother's body and cooling the child increase their survivor rate in developing nations. So that's a great thing, especially, you know, where that nation is and populations continuing is a good thing. So now we got, we've got a way to do that and pass that technology along. There's been uh, research in space. So space is unique in different types of research, like liquids. Liquids in space behave differently than they do here on with gravity here on earth, which has gravity. So they're able to study it a little bit differently. And through some research and the study of those liquids in space in zero gravity, you'll uh, perhaps have noticed most of you uh, that your liquid detergent containers have gotten smaller. That isn't just the HE high efficiency, making sure I remember my acronyms here, high efficiency laundry detergent that it's because of research in space that allows the liquid to be studied and change the chemistry and the way you make detergents, laundry detergents in this example, allows us to use less plastic in our containers on the shelf. So there's an environmental impact associated with changing your packaging, associated with the items that you sell. And in this instance, it was laundry. 
So our laundry and our planet benefits, we could do more in the plastic area and, and we are continuing to do that. But those are examples and baby formula, a very challenging thing right now. Space and nutrition is incredibly important in human performance, not to make it sound so scientific, but the nutrition associated with space flight and longer contemplating longer space flight. There was uh, years of studies and microallergy, algae, sorry, was uh, now is part of baby formula because it happens to mimic some of the fats in breast milk, the way they've been able to design this. So now you have greater nutrition for the infant population through baby formula, as well as discovering ways for longer space journeys to have improved nutrition and better performance. So these are more common um, inventions, discoveries, science research that make a difference in our daily lives. I love it, Renee. And I want to, th there's a passing fad called ESG. No, I'm kidding. It's not passing. <laughs> I'm messing with you. But I want to go there a bit more with you. You gave one example um, that, I, that I hung on to with the, uh, the HE uh, soaps. Um, I'm wondering... Because earlier you mentioned, you said that you made the comment, I don't know why we still do that. I don't know if it was in respect to the seatbelts or the fact that we have to demonstrate the seatbelt placements or both. <laughs> but I'm just wondering, are, are there things we have in place that kind of hold us in place and prevent us from moving forward? And and that's probably a general question. Do we, do we see that existing? And, and how does NASA perhaps break through that. And I can think of a million different ways to look at it too. How do they have that conversation? How do they represent the benefits of this for a program and the greater good of, of humanity? How do they get the funding for it? How do they show success? I mean, there's a lot of things I can dig into there, but I guess generally, are we stuck in places and how have you seen perhaps NASA innovate to get unstuck from some of these things? Yeah. So Sean, just that my comment was on seatbelts. 1950s, I think, is when they went into cars. And so the demonstration of it, I, I find interesting. But then again, I'm, I'm American, and I've lived most of my life here. So I'm accustomed to seeing those seatbelts. So certainly um, harnessing and materials research. NASA does a lot of materials research. It wasn't until I got to NASA that I understood that my dad had a PhD in materials. I was like, oh, what's that? And my dad did work for NASA. And, you know, you did, I didn't tell my friends, like, really? Your dad's a doctor of materials? What does that mean? Well, it matters a lot if you're going into space because of the harsh conditions of space and that. But let's talk about those materials and, and the difference that it makes. Um, so I'll something more common, the translucent braces, that uh, you may see folks wear, that's, um, that's invented from ceramics and they uh, the ceramics were done with NASA and these are shatter resistant, um, non-discoloring braces. And so again, it's advancing materials management. It can be to reducing the amount of materials being used. I mentioned the liquid detergents and it's not just the HE, it's all li the liquid detergents have benefited from zero gravity research on liquids and therefore you can compress and you know make them just as strong with less of the uh, detergent itself which is great for the water as well as for the plastic side of the whole thing when um, you improve materials they make a difference uh, there's a lot of people walking around now that we're at the unofficial summer here where your drinks get hot or cold well, in studying space and being able to have materials survive what's shake, bake, and sound, as well as cooling, um, those materials are being plowed back in for better containers for keeping liquids hot or cold. Those things can be used 
in medical situations where heating and cooling and keeping something at a particular temperature, again, you get these advancements, not just in the shrinking, but in the different capacities that you can do that. Water bottles, technology and the cooling is one of those that have come from NASA in its pursuit of that. But Sean, you also asked, I'm going to switch a little bit because you asked the question of going before Congress to ask for money. <laughs> so um, how do we get the money? How do we get money? You just go and you ask uh, and you fill out a boatload of paperwork and then you testify and you testify and you talk about the outcomes and you talk about the benefits. But also too, um, NASA's experiments in many cases are one of a kind. James Webb Telescope, which launched uh, Christmas 2021. And as a one of a kind, how do you talk about what you're gonna do. You can talk at least James Webb about what you did with Hubble and how you're gonna put it on steroids. That's easy, but how about that first time we flew weather satellites? Um, fortunately, I picked weather, which most people are like, yes, if we know more about the weather, we can save lives. We will know where that, we'll better predict where hurricanes are gonna make landfall because we've looked at it. We'll see where the droughts are having an impact and do things to prevent um, prevent disasters or report on that so we can learn on it and fix those disasters. We fly over volcanoes to see what's going on. Again, that's for safety and for science associated with, with that. And they marry up volcanic data beyond just satellites with other instrumentation. But how do you go forward it? And the first thing you do is you dream and you dream big. And you think about hard questions and we engage scientists all over the globe on those hard questions. What questions are we going to try to solve with this mission? And those questions get turned into the ones selected and then that gets converted to instrumentation and all of that process, you're going forward to Congress going, and here's the benefit that we're trying to solve for humanity, whether it's a direct or an indirect impact. And then you go testify and maybe that testimony is not so great. Been there, done that. And so you get to go back again and then you get to walk the halls and you get to answer the hard questions. But the more you answer, the more you stand up before it, the more you get to tell people why exploration and funding STEM is really important for the future of this country. You inspire people you solve hard problems and you work together and you fail. And when you fail, you go, okay, how do I do this better? And you get back up and you keep on going. And some of those stories succeed and some of them don't. And you learn from the ones that don't just as much as you do from the ones that did succeed. Absolutely. We have the tendency to to talk about what works or we do catastrophic news where we talk about all the things that don't go well, but how many during a catastrophe, maybe many things went well, but we don't focus on what we learn from it. And I think Sean, there is a podcast with you that is coming up soon. I, I edited it last night. Very, yes. very, very yes. good. Very Juliet good. Pam, yes. Yes. Uh, I'm going to go with Steve because all the things that Renee said about and, and she's an unbelievable, Renee, you're a great storyteller. I have to say that. I, I can stay here and be like, well, maybe I'm going to give you a podcast actually on the show if you want it, but maybe not. Steve, <laughs> the importance of telling story. I know the first few times we talk about going to DEF CON, bringing people from the government, bringing the conversation right there to get the budget, to get the funding, but also to get things done right and educating people. And I know that the Aerospace Village does, and all the other villages, to be honest, mm -hmm. at DEF CON are doing an amazing job in doing this. So tell me a little bit about what maybe what, what's coming up. Let's, let's do a little bit of tease for the aerospace coming yeah. up. Yeah, no, I can definitely do that. Even though you set me up very well with, she's an amazing storyteller. Steve, tell a story. <laughs> Steve, give it a try. <laughs> So I will do my best, but you're, you're right. It is a story in the sense that uh, I would have to imagine our journey as the aerospace village has been similar to what others have experienced. We're still relatively new, but I think back to 
some of the initial concerns and hesitation when we were first the Aviation Village and what are these folks doing? Who are they? And, you know, why are they doing all of this? And, and that's when we're talking across government, industry, and some parts of the security research community, even though that was our audience, and they tended to understand a vast majority of what we were doing and why. And so seeing that change where now, since that first event at DEF CON in 2019, where we are a part of RSA multiple times over, we've been supporting both RSA, DEF CON, virtually, of course, and then as we started picking up in person. But the change that we've seen over that time is uh, it's a good problem where now we have lots of things coming our way and we have lots of energy of folks wanting to jump in and support. We'll always take more, so I'm never going to say no. Uh, you know, I'm happy to, to talk about partnering up and joining us, but where now when we're getting major air, uh, aircraft companies, major airlines, they want to contribute to have folks talk and present in our village because they know that we, the credibility we've built up, they want to support that. They want to be able to engage across the hacker community with their government counterparts, uh, with an international audience, and because we also focus on the STEM side of things, uh, STEM and workforce growth. And so where how do they inspire folks to come work for them, of course, but just to join the community in general, because we all need help dealing with the cybersecurity side of things. Um, and it's a great place to do that. So we've seen that changing government agencies. Uh, it used to be CISA was there initially. Now the focus on aviation cybers over in TSA, um, getting connected to smart folks like Renee and, and continuing to grow within NASA. So we're seeing that uh, European side of things, both the UK CAA and the European Space Agency. And then, like I said, when we're bringing in major tech companies and major airlines, and soon we'll be able to announce uh, the different folks that we have coming in for DEF CON. It's awesome. It is great to see that changing attitude and being able to be a part of that and contribute to that changing. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it's great to see. And, and that's the kind of work that we do. So it's, it's you know, happy to continue that as, we, uh, as we're growing right along. Yeah, love it, Steve. And I can't uh, can't wait to hear more about what's uh, what's going on over the next few months with the village and, and uh, all the great work you and the team are doing. It's always always good to connect on that. And, and Renee, I want to take this to you. Um, just this, because Steve said the cybersecurity community looks at aerospace and they can immediately see where they can quote unquote plug themselves in. <laughs> the the reverse. And I think this is where Marco is going with uh, the storytelling. The reverse isn't always the same, right? So the aviation or aerospace communities may not immediately see the connection to cybersecurity. They might, they might look at it from an availability perspective and, and think, okay, it's important to keep things available. Um, integrity is probably important. Maybe privacy a little less in, in that CIA triad. Right? Where to order them? Maybe I'm wrong. But I guess my, my question to you is two parts. Um, how does the world of aerospace kind of get their head wrapped around the world of cybersecurity? And you, you, you touched on it briefly earlier, STEM and diversity um, in, in relation to understanding this challenge, the, the role a broad community can play, not just a, a, an old white guy. <laughs> <laughs> sitting behind a keyboard, right? So maybe those two things. How how does the how does the sector kind of get their head wrapped around it and the role of diversity in in overcoming some of those challenges? Uh -huh. Thank you for the question. And I think Steve, you're gonna want to fill in some pieces too. So cybersecurity in space, I had the distinct pleasure and and honor to lead overhauling NASA's entire cybersecurity posture both here on this planet as well as in space. And um, I had the backing of a, two great administrators at NASA, which I needed. Um, I used to always joke, I'm like, yeah, I'm a little afraid to go to the parking lot today because who's gonna have something to say about what I'm trying to change here? 
but I say myself, but I, I, the change was through a team and the coalition of the willing. And it begins first with education and being able to tell people that the risks they have at this juncture in cybersecurity are blind risk. You don't want to fly with blind risk. They tell pilots, know your plane. I'm sure they say the same thing to astronauts, but I've never heard it quoted. Know what you're doing. Know what you're, and if there's humans at the end of it at NASA, the end of the IT, you cybersecurity and security, physical security can be one in the same. If you're relying on oxygen systems, which rely upon software, you got to make sure that the time you docked didn't get a nice little injection of a virus and that, but start with education, begin with where people are. What is your job? Let me help you start to illuminate those risks, ask questions, be their friend. And yes, I, I was called lots of names. I know that when I woke up in the morning, I was dumb, ugly, and stupid. Hearing that when I was in the hallway sometimes, I was over it. I really did get yelled at quite a bit, but it's okay. The purpose was greater. The purpose was we can't continue to hemorrhage like we are. We can't let our network be used for illegal criminal operations. The stuff we found, the stuff you find on your network, you'd be appalled. So educate and then begin, then you begin to acknowledge that you have a problem and then you can begin to collaborate to solve the hard stuff. Yeah, I think the the other part of that, and Renee, I'd have to imagine you probably saw is, as I have different discussions, people talk about, well, we're trying to get our engineers to appreciate security and the value of it. They only talk safety. Like, well, shoot, I used to talk safety. I know exactly what that means. Um, and the reality is, like what Renee said, talk, you know, begin where they are, talk in their language. Like, what do you mean by safety? Well, that means that you know how that system works. Oh, okay. Let me tell you what security does to help you know how that system works because you know that system is secure and here's how at a level that they understand. And so when you start putting that together, next thing you know, it isn't that security person over there who keeps bugging me. It's that person over there who has a piece of the puzzle that helps me make this system safe. And that's all I care about. Awesome. And uh, having been a CISO in the private sector, explaining how I can help HR, I can help finance, I can help the company do its contracts, its business. I have to speak in their terms, not, hey, this cool SIM is going to allow us to check logs and find these things. They're like, dude, I don't care what that means. How does that help me get the paychecks out? How does that help me protect privacy data? Things like that. So from an operational point, um, from the flying background that I have, and when I hear Renee talking about it uh, from you know a space operational uh, standpoint, these, I hope, as I say, I'm starting to see more of that, that it's because those conversations are starting to happen more. The appreciation for the cybersecurity side and what it does and for the cyber folks to understand if you speak in their language, they will listen and you can be more helpful is starting to come together. And so that's a, you know, if we can, whether it's the village or personally being able to continue growing those types of things, uh, that's what I hope to do to, to continue that conversation and making it better. And I want to re reconnect with part of the question, the, the, the two part question that Sean had, and, and it was about diversity. So, all this conversation it is getting wider more people are understanding but it's also true because cybersecurity has become not just a technology issue it's never been but we we thought it was and it's more a human issue and many more people from different walk of life different background and thankfully diverse group of people came came to this and we all know that innovation come from diverse thinking. So I, I would like, Renee, your opinion on, on this. Yeah, I, I, thanks for bringing us back to that question, because I think it's a very important question. 
um, problems get solved with diversity of thought, diversity of your background, diversity of where you grew up, diversity of your first language, uh, and that changing the face of, of tech begins with being intentional, being inviting. I uh, reminded that, uh, you know, I, um, one of the things I mentioned, you know, serving on corporate boards is a, a thing that I want to do in my, you know, bring, bring some of my experience to the table for running a company. And that, and part of that is I had to, my network had to grow in a different way. Well, if you're in charge of an organization and you look around at your golf outing or your social and that network um, and where you always go and you're comfortable looks the same all the time, great, but change it up every once in a while. On that golf outing, invite that female, not me. I've struggled with that game for years. I'll, I'll drive the drink cart cart and I know the rules well enough that I could stay out of your way, but invite them to be part of that. Invite them to be part of the conversation. Bring them in. When you go to recruit, be intentional. When I did, I I made a mistake um, on one of my recruitments at, at NASA. It was my first, my first one. And I hit the easy button. I, mean, I had not been at NASA. I bet, let's see, July, August, September. So I'd been there two and a half months when I was the CIO. We we were recruiting for a CISO and um, the previous CIO had already started all that. I'm like, great, run with it. That's one less thing to worry about besides all the acronyms. When I got the cert and I went, a certificate and I went through the interviews, I felt terrible because I had just kind of, ran into these other lives and I'm now going to affect them negatively. But the people that I interviewed looked all the same. And I couldn't in good conscience, I couldn't do it. I, I, I recruited wrong and I asked the wrong questions. And so I called each and every person that I'd interviewed, apologized for my mistake. I had failed and I affected them. And I needed to interview for leadership and I needed to make sure that my certificate reflected differently in its composition, race and ethnicity and gender. And I did it again. And this time when I did the round of interviews of 11 individuals, I had percentages now, not zero. I had them, including women, including blacks, I had vets, right? I had this, I had a great cert in cybersecurity that people told me I couldn't get. Well, if I didn't try, I wouldn't have known that I could have gotten it. And it's changed the way I recruited every step of the way when I was at NASA. I went to Women in Technology. I went to Dice.com. I made a point to make a difference in the way things looked and the way, and I interviewed to get a different thought into building a remarkable team. So you begin is you begin with yourself and you know that you are responsible for that change. And if you are responsible for that change, then you'll figure out how to make it happen. And you'll ask questions, right? I didn't do this alone. I'm, I'm standing here representing lots of stories, lots of scars, lots of great fun. And, but I had to learn that if you want it to change, you are the reason it changes and you're the one that has to change bureaucracy, which is what I did. Um, to change just this one recruitment. And um, I, I, I had like the world's greatest CISOs when I was in NASA and current NASA CISOs, like the best in the entire world personally, or the globe. I'll say the universe, I'll give the globe to somebody else. I'll let him have the universe. And that, and that begins by making change and you have to be responsible for it. Don't sit back and expect change and not try and do something or ask for help. So that's how you change. And I think cybersecurity, we have to stop thinking about the person needing a four-year degree. Why don't we do apprenticeships like plumbers and all of that? This gives people that have never fathomed going to college, may not go to college, who have an aptitude for cybersecurity. 
they're the ones who probably enjoy tier one tickets when a cybersecurity call comes in because they're learning something. They're excited about it. If you want to change it, think about how it needs to be different and then just start running and bring all your friends along and bring people that you never imagined along because you need talent that you didn't know you needed. Um, and it starts with you. Great. And Steve, you want I'm going to let Steve comment. I just quickly though, Renee, because Two, two important things, it's probably 100 in, underneath the covers there if we dug deep, but two stuck out to me. One, you recognized the zero mm -hmm. percentage, and two, you didn't accept it. And it, 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 it's those are both hard things to do, right, unless you're being purposeful and meaningful in what you do. So kudos to you for, for taking those and, and, and then also just sharing that experience with us here because I think there's a lot that people can – can take from that. Steve, any thoughts you want to share? Yeah, I, you know, I appreciate having a similar learning the lesson, thinking about it more clearly. Uh, coming from the job that I did in the Air Force, there was not a ton of diversity. And granted, it was also quite a while ago. Uh, things have gotten better and have changed. So, you know, there's changes happening there. Getting to see that on my own, being in charge as an executive, being able to go yeah, that is, you have to think about it. You have to make it an intentional, whether it's who you're hiring or their background. And, and my favorite uh, hiring as an intern and then ultimately on my team, uh, a young man who was actually in college, but before he graduated college and he's still doing very well. So just the willingness to say, I don't need him to have a degree. He's working on it, but in this case, it, it worked out very well. And then uh, from the village perspective, what I extra enjoy is we get connected with so many di diverse groups. The groups themselves are diverse, let alone if we're supporting uh, being able to speak at a conference in Argentina. It helped that it was virtual versus travel. We could support them as you know a different international perspective. Folks we have on our team are not all from the United States, which is great supporting other groups, Blacks in cybersecurity, the events they put on, women in cybersecurity and what they're doing. I like being a member myself and being able to support women veterans if they want help and advice and anything I can provide. Or what I really do is, I don't know, but I know she can help you and I can at least connect you and introduce you. So having a network that can help others be a part of that network and just the value from that, again, personally and from uh, the village work, uh, that's one of the things I love the most about it, being able to mentor and help out and, and, and bring others along as they're trying to learn things. Wonderful, wonderful. I think we're here in the one hour mark and uh, we lied, obviously, when we said well, it's going to be 40 this minutes. Is a, this is a traditional product delivery. You plan for 40 minutes and it takes <laughs> a little extra well, half again is long, right? Well, but you know what? I I truly enjoy every single second of these. And maybe we, we did talk about things we didn't plan. And uh, maybe we didn't touch on other things like that. I don't know. Maybe you guys want to come back. More than happy to, to carry the conversation. Renee, you, you talk about this, the James Webb telescope, the Hubble. I was thinking the Voyager for the communication that 45 years later is still sending us signals and nobody thought it was going to be possible. So imagine the places we could go. But uh, we, we went in a lot of places. And I want to thank you so much. I, I, I hope that people are, that are listening are making the connection with society. They enjoy the stories that you had to share. And I encourage to read the notes on this podcast. Steve, Renee, if you have any links that you think it may be useful to learn about NASA, about, of course, the Aerospace Village and other things that may be relevant for, for people that want to be in the industry, want to be in this, this sector, or just curious about space exploration and, and all of that that you guys are doing at the space, uh, Aerospace Village. So, Sean, I'm very happy. We never found out if the drill was actually invented in space, and I think we should leave it as a mystery. Or at least, the drill uh, is uh, rumbling in my stomach. <laughs> it was invented there. <laughs> it was invented there. <laughs> All right. With that, I think uh, it may be lunchtime for you. So, well, I think uh, it's lunchtime. But this is, uh, yeah, very appreciative, uh, Steve and Renee, for 
for, uh, for your time and your stories. Always a pleasure to chat with you, Steve. Look forward to connecting with you at uh, one of the village events. And uh, Renee, yeah, pleasure meeting you and hopefully uh, we'll have a chance to connect with you soon. Thank you very much. It was an absolute pleasure. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. Black Cloak provides concierge cybersecurity protection to corporate executives and high net worth individuals to protect against hacking, reputational loss, financial loss, and the impacts of a corporate data breach. Learn more at blackcloak.io. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSBmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.